Second Samuel chapter 21, and I've asked Bob Federley to pray God's blessing upon the proclamation of his own truth. Second Samuel chapter 21. And there was a famine in the days of David three years, year after year. And David sought the face of Jehovah. And Jehovah said, it is for Saul and for his bloody house, because he put to death the Gibeonites. And the king called the Gibeonites and said unto them, Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. And the children of Israel had sworn unto them, and Saul sought to slay them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. And David said unto the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And wherewith shall I make atonement, that she may bless the inheritance of Jehovah? And the Gibeonites said unto him, It is no matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house, neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What ye shall say, that will I do for you. And they said unto the king, The man that consumed us, and that devised against us that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the borders of Israel. Let seven men of his sons be delivered unto us, and we will hang them up unto Jehovah in Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of Jehovah. And the king said, I will give them. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for bridging the gap between your perfection and our imperfections. As we study your word and the history of this world, looking at the character of Paul's of the men and the families before us, I praise you and thank you for examples such as David, for even the faults that he had that he was unable in his, his own strength to overcome, but he was able to Experience your glory with repentance and returning to you and your work. May we take comfort in doing the same. Well, we continue in this uh, awkward portion of God's Word, this account of the famine due to an absence of rain for three years. And that's the problem that David was confronted with. Some commentators suggest that it's surprising that he waited three years. But I think if we reflect, if those commentators would reflect on their own experiences must we not all admit that when we have trials and tribulations, when things don't go the way we would like them, when things go against us, how quickly do we cry unto God to give to us the reason behind it, to indeed advise us if there's something that we have done wrong that has been part of the reason that this evil has been brought upon us, or this problem has been brought upon us. What is the cause? 
We are exhorted in scripture again and again to examine ourselves, are we not? And when there is something that befalls us, something that we have little or no control over, truly no control when we consider it fully, we need to behave as we suggested last week. We need to behave like David did here and seek the face of Jehovah. There was a famine three years, and finally, after three years, David sought the face of Jehovah. That is remarkable in and of itself, that it took him so long, especially when, if this is chronological, after he had come through an entire period of chastening because of his sin with Bathsheba and his murder of her husband, Uriah the Hittite. And yet here it is before us that there was a famine these three years. And we will say it this way again, finally, David sought the face of Jehovah. May we learn a lesson from that in itself. Not to, not to wait, but to cry unto God to show us what he would have us to do in regard to any problem. And it may be, but it's up to him, of course, it may be that he will. Wait three years before he gives you an answer, before he advises you of what he would have you to do, before he tells you what this problem, what the cause of this problem is. But David sought Jehovah's face. What's the problem? We can imagine, I don't think that he would irreverently say to God, what's the problem? But that's what he intended. That's what he meant. Because God responded, it is for Saul and for his bloody house. We don't know because we're not told, but it would be hard to imagine that David wasn't aware of what Saul had done to the Gibeonites that brought this about. We're not even certain of how much time had passed. Of course, we know that it had to happen before Saul was, was slain by the Philistines, but we don't know how much time prior to that it may have taken place. Commentators are at variance about how much time probably had passed. Some considering that it must have, it must have happened prior, uh, obviously, to when Saul was slain. But they, they connect it because of the mention of Mephibosheth in a few verses later. They connect it with that and say, well, it must have happened. It must have happened after that because um, Mephibosheth wasn't even made known to David. And they're not certain of that. But it's a wonderment. But the problem is because when David asks, what do you mean, his bloody house? Because Saul put to death the Gibeonites. Yes, but didn't you order your people to destroy all the Canaanites from the land? Well, that's true. However, this was a, an isolated case. And Saul, in slaying these Gibeonites, in attacking them, and slaying so many of them, broke a covenant that was made in my name by Joshua. And we looked at that last week in Joshua, in chapter 9. Even though it was through deceit that the Gibeonites tricked Joshua and the Israelites into making a promise making a covenant with them that they would not slay them. 
Then when they found out who they were and that they were right before them almost, within a few days' journey, they discovered them and said, why did you deceive us? And they frankly admitted, like Rahab spoke to the spies that Joshua had sent into Jericho, she admitted that the people were trembling when they heard of what God has done, what your God has done through your people. And this was the same case with the Gibeonites. They were desperate and they wanted to have protection from being slaughtered like Jericho, like AI afterwards. So there was a covenant, but it was made under the name of Jehovah their God. So God's name, the honor of his name was in jeopardy and Saul broke that covenant when he attacked the Gibeonites, breaking a covenant bearing the name of God. David called to himself the Gibeonites, whereby it's obvious to us that Saul hadn't slain all the Gibeonites. But he called the Gibeonites and he asked them, how can I atone for this? How can I make satisfaction for this? How can I, what can I do? What would you have me to do that, that would take this, the onus of this thing away, whereby you could bless us, bless Israel, bless our God, as they evidently had been doing. He asked them. He said it before them to provide the remedy. What is it going to take? It is very likely that God had also told David what, what it was that, that he should do to atone for this wickedness of Saul. He very likely told him, and nonetheless, David didn't give that information to the Gibeonites, but he, to accommodate them, he asked them, what would you have me to do? They responded to the king, we don't care about money or land. We don't care anything about that. That's not going to satisfy. They could have demanded both money by way of reparation or land or both. They could have, and it's surprising really when you think about it because they had been made hewers of wood and carriers of water for the temple of Jehovah. They had been made servants, bond servants to Israel. And it's kind of amazing when you think about it that they didn't ask for their freedom. Give us our freedom, they may well have said. But they don't care about money. They don't care about land. And evidently they're happy where they're, where they're at. They don't ask for freedom. They want to stay where they're at. Saul is not able to atone for their loss since he is dead. He's no longer alive, so he can't. But they tell him, let seven of his sons be given us. Let seven of his sons be given us. That we can hang them up before Jehovah. Obviously intending execution. It's interesting that they didn't ask, since we're looking at representative government, if you will, in the asking for seven sons of Saul, it's interesting that they didn't ask David to forfeit his life 
since he was now king of Israel, was he not responsible for what happened because he was king of Israel? But they didn't ask that either. They asked, let seven of his sons be given us. Is this fair? Does it strike you as fair? Seven sons of Saul. Some of them were actually grandsons, but referred to as sons. That's what they asked for. Remember Achan in Joshua in chapter 7. How that Achan had seen when they went into Jericho after the walls fell. He, everything was supposed to be devoted to the temple of Jehovah. But he saw these, these things that caught his eye. He saw gold and silver and a wonderful Babylonish garment, we're told. And so he took those. He didn't devote them to destruction, but he took them and he hid them under his tent, it says, buried them perhaps underneath the floor of his tent. And things went badly when they attacked Ai. Part of it was the fall of Joshua and the rest of Israel because they were proud at how they had taken Jericho, that huge city. Oh, Ai, that's just a little one. We can just send a few thousand men. That's all we need to do there. And Ai chased them away. The men of Ai chased them away, killing about 20 of them. And here's another one of those circumstances. Joshua hadn't inquired of God about that, but sent troops there. And they were defeated and embarrassed and dishonored. But God, Jehovah then cried unto God. Why? And that's what we're talking about again with David seeking the face of Jehovah. That's what Joshua did in the case of Ai. Well, God told him what the problem was. There's sin in the camp, to put it that way. There's sin in the camp. And using the Urim and the Thummim, the high priest and Joshua discovered where the sin was and who was the bearer of that sin, who was the guilty party, and they, they cast lots. And eventually it went to this tribe and it went to that family. And there it was, standing before him, Achan. Joshua asked him to give glory unto God and confess what he had done. And Achan's mouth was opened, if we can put it that way, and he told him, I saw, and I coveted, and I took. Really the same order of sin that we read of in James. I saw, I coveted, I took. Well, what did they do? What was the punishment meted out to Achan? They stoned him to death, but not Achan alone. His entire family with him. Is that fair? Yes. It has to be fair because God called for it. And in the same case, in the same re with the same reasoning, it's fair that seven of Saul's sons are given up in order to satisfy the Gibeonites. They may have killed hundreds, we're not told. Saul may have killed thousands, we don't know. And they're satisfied with seven. 
Evidently, the number seven, as it often does to us, means something to them. They were satisfied with seven of his sons. They said, we will hang them up unto Jehovah. It is for the honor of Jehovah. In Gibeah, the city of Saul, the hometown of Saul, they refer to him as the chosen of Jehovah. Again, bringing God into this matter. The one that did that was the chosen of Jehovah. And the king said unto them, I will give them. And he did. And they permitted him to choose whom he would. Which is surprising and wonderful at the same time. So we have here the crime or the sin of Saul, his bloody house. Saul sought to slay these Gibeonites in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah, we're told. What does that mean? What does it mean when we're told in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah? If, if he was so zealous, we'd like to know why that, didn't, that zeal didn't extend to Agag and the Amorites when he let them live. It seems like that in one way or another, it must be self-serving. It must have been for his own interests that he attacked the Gibeonites. We read in 1 Samuel 22 and 6 and 7, Saul sitting under a tamarisk tree, consulting with some of his troops. It was during the time he was pursuing David, who he believed was a threat to his throne. And he's asking them, if you know where he is, tell me. He says, why, do, why would any of you follow after him? He's paranoid at that point in time. And he's looking for people that might turn against him, that might betray him. And he's saying, haven't I given you lands and money and goods? Well, commentators ask, where did he get all those lands and goods? And Well, it may have been from the Gibeonites. And it's a fair suggestion to make. But the bottom line was that Saul's own interests were almost certainly the reason that he attacked the Gibeonites for one interest or another. But this was the crime. This was the sin that had to be atoned for. The need was to satisfy the victims, the Gibeonites, requirements to satisfy the victims and take away the onus on God's name. In other words, propitiation was needed. That crime under God's name and that crime that attached to the entire nation of Israel, God's people, it had to be propitiated. It had to be satisfied. How will, how will we do that? How shall we do that? And he asked, David asked the Gibeonites, what would you have me to do? What will it take to satisfy the justice of this terrible wickedness, this crime, this sin? What will it take to satisfy? Because we want your blessing. And probably he was thinking in terms of showers of rain because the country was dry for three years. 
What is it going to take to satisfy, to take away God's wrath and allow him to allow rain to fall upon us again? The application, satisfaction will be gained through the vicarious offering of Saul's son, seven of them. A vicarious substitute for Saul himself. Saul's son, seven of them. That his wrath might be pacified, that it might be satisfied, that it, there might be atonement made through the blood of Saul's sons for the bloody house, for his bloody house. That expression, his bloody house, suggests that he probably did slaughter many, many Gibeonites. Does this not bring to our minds another transaction in the scriptures? Another transaction of much, much greater bearing. We speak now. We turn our thoughts to another matter. Lloyd-Jones in a small book setting the gospel forth, he calls that small work. If you know how many books it takes for for his commentary on Romans and his commentary on Ephesians, you'll understand why I say this was a small book. But he titled it, The Plight of Man. The Plight of Man and the Power of God. And that's what we find as we turn our thoughts to Genesis. Genesis in the second chapter. I'm sure you know where I'm going with this. But Genesis chapter 2. At verse 15 and 16 and 17. And then we will jump to chapter 3. But here. And Jehovah God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And Jehovah God commanded the man saying. Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. As Joshua said to his people later on in that book toward the end, choose you this day who you serve. This was what was spoken to Adam. And surely he spoke it to Eve. Choose you this day who you will serve, who you will obey. Will you obey his commandment not to touch that fruit? And live, or will you disobey and die? Well, we read in chapter 3, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field, which Jehovah God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, Of the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. He didn't tell them not to touch it. Isn't that part of our nature to try to embellish even the commandments of God for our own reasons or whatever? We see this early. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as God, knowing good and evil. 
He called God a liar, didn't he? There are people today that have no problem doing that. Very same thing. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and she gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. I know that it's not agreed upon by writers and commentators whether there was a covenant made here, but I'm going to call it a covenant. God promised life if they obeyed and death if they didn't. So I don't have any problem, as some do, calling it the covenant made with Adam and Eve. But at any rate, that covenant, if in fact it is a covenant or was a covenant, was broken by them. They broke the covenant. Just like Saul in slaying the Gibeonites broke the covenant. There was a breaking on this occasion as well of the covenant by Adam and Eve. And Jehovah God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou mayest not eat it. And he promised death, did he not? But here's the problem. They became dead. The promise was carried out. They became dead. Yes, they live physically, continue to live physically, bearing children, but they became spiritually dead. Paul reminds us of that in Ephesians 2. And you who were dead in trespasses and sins. It was given to them the warning that if they disobeyed, they would die. Dying, thou shalt die, and dying, they did die when they disobeyed God's command. They had destroyed themselves. Well, Saul didn't know it at the time when he disobeyed, but he destroyed himself. He at least destroyed seven of his sons, if not many more, through his behavior. But these seven sons are to be sacrificed to atone for his wickedness, his folly. He destroyed them by his behavior, by his disobedience, by his selfishness. Well, what's the answer to this? David asked the Gibeonites, what shall I do? A covering was called for. The covering was called for. There was a need for covering. And it was afterwards recognized, this need for a covering. Recognized when their eyes were open, Adam and Eve knew then that they were naked. The eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. They knew that they needed a covering. They needed something more than fig leaves. They needed the covering of the blood of God himself. 
But the satisfaction was promised in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. He shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. He shall bruise thy head, he said to the serpent, the one who had enticed Eve, and she enticed Adam, and they sinned against the living God. But he promises here the first promise of a Savior, the first promise of a coming Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, who in Psalm 40 cries out in his pre-incarnate uh, time, Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me to do thy will. Thy law is before me ever. But satisfaction must be rendered in order to make things right. And God provided that satisfaction. And I suggest that here, while we have differing terms, of course, that we have almost a type in Saul's behavior and the behavior of David and the Gibeonites in satisfying this matter that was brought to David's attention when he sought the face of Jehovah. Why this famine? Why no rain? And he was told, in the one case, we see the crime, Saul's bloody house. How may that be made right? And in the other, how may they deal? How can it be dealt with the folly of their ignoring the warning of death from God? In the matter of David and the Gibeonites, how to satisfy their plea and satisfy God's honor to maintain the integrity of their God. How must it be done? And in the disobedience of Adam and Eve, as I said, they need a better covering than fig leaves. And it's promised to them. Satisfaction rendered for the Gibeonites, vicarious substitution of seven sons of Saul. Their blood satisfied. Their blood was a covering for the wickedness of their father and grandfather, Saul. And it satisfied the Gibeonites and, and it satisfied God because it rained. God was entreated and there was rain. Satisfaction was rendered. And satisfaction that was promised to Adam and Eve has been rendered for sinners for whom Christ died for sinners for whom he was hanged upon the tree. It's been promised for those whose names were written upon his hands. Satisfaction has been rendered. We're told that the seed of the woman will bruise the serpent's head. And we're told in Galatians, but when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons, that we might be restored to God through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, through the blood of our Savior, through the blood of the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world. The children of Adam are in great need of a mediator. We are in need of an advocate a surety, one to sprinkle his blood upon us to make us his own. 
want to send His Spirit into our hearts, bringing life, spiritual life to us through the regenerating power and grace of God the Holy Spirit. Want to keep us tightly in His hand. Our King, the head of His body, the church. One to keep us tightly in his hand, one to stand at God's right hand, ever living to intercede for us. God has satisfied the need of sinners through the blood of the Lamb of God, through the life and the death of Jesus Christ, the God-man, the Messiah, the King of kings, and Lord of lords, the Savior of the world pouring out his blood for his people. Those who God the Father had given to him from the foundation of the world, he poured out his blood at Golgotha. We need him to communicate with us at his table. We desire to communicate with him. We need always to have our faith increased our understanding to be builded up. We need light to shine in our minds, on our brains. We need our hearts quickened. I submit that these are many of the grounds for which Christ has set this table before us to communicate with him and yes, to remember him as we've sung and, and as we read. There was a time, I must confess, in my early years as a believer, that I thought that we should approach the Lord's table in a rather somber tone, in a rather serious and somber behavior, reflecting on how unworthy we are in ourselves. We are unworthy. But in Christ, we are worthy. That's the whole point. We are worthy in Christ to come to his table. He calls us to. He invites us to. He set it before us for that reason. I praise God for the time that he took this foolishness away from me. <laughs> when, I, when I couldn't even bring myself to smile during communion, I thought it's such a somber thing. And of course, Christ hanging upon that tree is a somber thing. But the love that brought him to do it as a joyful thing, a wonderful thing. And as I learned, and I adjure you, put aside any introspection, put on peace and joy in who, the, the one who is our joy, the one who is the Prince of Peace. Put on peace and joy, thanksgiving and praise. Communicating with him, communicating with his love. We are coming to the king, our king, our savior, yes, our elder brother, yes, our king, our champion. We are coming to him because he has invited us, because he has directed us, yes, but because he has invited us to come to his table to remember him, him who is mercy, mercy and truth himself. Mercy and truth in Psalm 85 brought together. Righteousness and peace coming together in him. 
Righteousness and peace were told in that psalm, having kissed together for us, for his people. Let us kiss him. We read that in Psalm 2. Kiss, kiss the Lord. Kiss him. Let us adore him who is the king of mercy. One writer suggested that it would be good since we fell in Adam. He was saying it was a good thing that we fell in Adam. Understand his reasoning that we might be raised in Christ. It's true, although it may be a little twisted. You understand what he had in mind, I'm sure. As long as Christ stands at God's right hand, so we stand in him, in the beloved. He will never lose one member of his body. If you're in Christ, come to his table. You are welcome. You are welcome to come. We're told that Christ Jesus in Romans 3, whom God set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to show his righteousness because of the passing over of sins done aforetime in the forbearance of God. For the showing, I say, of his righteousness at this present season, that he might himself be just and the justifier of him that hath faith in Jesus. Let us adore this morning. Let us adore the manner of divine mercy, of God's divine mercy, in giving his only begotten son, his darling son, how much he loves us, that he gave us his only begotten son. Let us commune with him. God commendeth his, his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We commemorate that. We remember that. And we come to Christ to rejoice in that. One writer said, the Lord's Supper is the great preacher of the death of Christ till his second coming. The Lord's Supper is the great preacher of the death of Christ till his second coming. Let us pray. Our Father, help us to come to thy table now. Help us to rejoice in thee. O oh Lord our God, help us to remember and to reflect on thy great love for us. Uh, that love that impelled thee to Golgotha. Help us to rejoice in thee and thank thee and praise thee by coming to communicate with thee at thy table, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.